This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. But we've got books to talk about. We do. So here we go. Graham Simpson's latest release is entitled Creative Differences. And the major thing in the collection um, deals with a couple who have written a best-selling book collaboratively. So, Graham, welcome back to 3CR. Great to be back. Hi, Jan, too. Scott and Emily are the couple in question, but the premise seems to be very close to home. Well, yes, it's about a writing couple who, um, well, that, that's the characters are close to home. The premise that their marriage is possibly on the rocks because they want to pursue different writing directions, not so much. But the, there's a tension then, a collaborative tension that takes place. Do you base your story ideas on things that are actually happening around you at the time? Oh, look, I'm certainly, not necessarily at the time, but um, certainly everything I've written has been inspired by real life. And you, you look at it and you say, here's a situation, what if? What would make it more exciting? Or perhaps you bring in another situation and mix the two. Now, Scott and Emily represent two different sides of the writing process. They approach things differently. One is organic and one's more formulaic. Which approach would you take? Well, well in fact, in the writing community... We community we talk about plotters or planners and pantsers. Pantsers are people who write by the seat of their pants. They're the people who sit down in front of that typewriter or computer these days and wait for the drops of blood to form. Whereas the plotters at the extreme are the people who know exactly how the story will play out, how it will end before they even start. But is this a reflection of you and Anne? No, it's not. Uh, look, the inspiration there was when I was asked to do this novella, Creative Differences, it was actually originally released as an audiobook um, only, so exclusively as an audiobook, and it's just now come out in print. Um, and they said, you know, it was commissioned. I thought, what am I going to write about? Um, I was in the process of, of finishing uh, the novel project, which is my How to Write book. And one of the things I address in the novel project is this difference. You know, I'm a great supporter of a planning approach, at least for people for whom the waiting for the drops of blood isn't working. I thought, let's dramatise this. Let's take this, let's, let's personalise it, make it a couple of people, one who takes the, the sort of plotter approach, one who takes the, um, the pantser approach, one who's very literary in their orientation, one who's more commercially oriented. Let's, let's try to encapsulate some of these... Um, different positions that happen in the writing world and let's make some drama out of it. Because Anne was saying last week about her novel how she had to plan it out all very carefully. She had to because she lives with me. <laughs> but at the same time, you've, you've talked uh, about um, that writing almost a self-help book there, but this reads in some ways, if we read it on one level, as a self-help guide to inspiring would-be writers. Well, well, suitably wrapped up as fiction, just just as a, you know, as a crime book might actually be a guide on how to how to do a murder and get away with it. Um, look, my, my sister-in-law read it, and she said, oh, she said, those two characters, it just reminded me too much of you and Anne on the page, and my sister and my brother-in-law, but she said, I did learn how to write a book. Because there, there's all sorts of rather helpful suggestions coming about all the way through. Cards, but this is from... Um, the film industry, taking a card, setting out a scene and, and plotting in that way. Yeah, well, I set the character Scott up as a, as a former screenwriter and uh, he's become a novelist, something I know a little bit about. <laughs> um, and, you know, and screenwriters are notoriously structure freaks. They're all about the shape of the story and so forth, whereas people who've always been on the novelist side tend to be more concerned about the, the, the prose, less concerned about um, following a formula for, for shape. 
Because the structure of this book, we have the two voices, Scott and Emily, but you were just explaining to me uh, in the green room uh, before the show went on that there is, in fact, another sort of structure or scaffold that you've used to hold, bind this book together in some ways. Yeah, look, because it was going to be an audio book, I was looking for inspiration from some sort of you know, audio source. Um, and I thought, you know, I tend to write... A structure of my novels tends to be, not always, but in four parts. You know, you've got Act 1, Act 2A, 2B, Act Act 3. And I've been writing all about this in the in the novel project. And audio source, maybe a four-part symphony. I thought, what about a double album? So I took the most iconic double album of all time, the, the Beatles' White Album, and basically it's 30 tracks on it. There's 30 chapters in this book. The voices shift and the voices happen to shift exactly in line with who sings the songs on the on the album. So those four characters map onto the four Beatles and you don't need to know that. But that's more, you don't need to know that, but that's more your inspiration for getting you creatively in gear rather than necessarily influencing the narrative? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a huge student of creativity. Um, that's what I did my PhD in. So I'm, I'm very interested in that. And look, this was the equivalent you know, of, of looking up random words in a dictionary. You know, creativity really thrives on constraints. And, it's at, and so I'm sort of saying, OK, this is the song that Ringo sings. I'm going to need another character. I'm going to need, you know, I'm going to need it to be in this place. How will that fit? And suddenly the ideas start flowing rather than just saying, I've got to write another chapter. Now, to this sort of self-help book, we get a, an, an element of psychological frisson being I should hope so. added. So it, the, there are layers to this uh, novella. Uh, the collaborative act of writing takes on a whole other dimension. I told her that I valued the joy of creativity more than sex. Well, he had to, didn't he? <laughs> because she'd already said that she valued getting published and being a, that she preferred that, that writing was more important to her than sex. And he's just abstracted it away a little bit from that and said, "Well, you know, in the broader sense, I, w I don't have to be a writer, but but part of being a human being is to be creative." So this adds to the uh, psychological tension then between Emily and Scott. But all of a sudden, then we have the introduction of. Piper, I won't say it's a menage a trois, but Piper wants to uh, emulate. Yeah, please Emily? don't don't scare the punters with that menage a trois. <laughs> the best of Adam Sharp actually has got one of those in it, and it scared a lot of people off. There is no actual menage a trois the, the, in creative differences. <laughs> but there's the the psychological challenge or the tension starts to rise here mm. because Piper comes in, she looks like. Emily. She takes Emily's writing classes. Emily feels almost as if she's being stalked. And then she seeks advice from Scott. Yeah, look, look. I think um, she's a bit of a super fan and they, they certainly exist. Um, and, and she wants to emulate Emily. And part of Emily's life is, is Scott. But it's not so much of um, a threat of a, a romantic or sexual betrayal. The threat is actually a literary betrayal. But if you've equated literature and sex already... So, oh. I didn't equate them. <laughs> it's me reading into it, is it? It's my fault. But, but look, it's certainly there. Um, it's certainly there, as a, not so much as a metaphor for sex, but as a metaphor for an important underlying part of the relationship. Um, and, you know, Scott... And, 
Scott and Emily have, you know, the, the premise of the book is that Scott and Emily have had this massive success writing a book together where she's done the beautiful prose, he's done the story, what a great success. He just wants to do it again and again. And she says, well, no, no, I'm going to use the money we've made to go off and write beautiful prose and do worthwhile work and and the the clash sort of comes out of that the literary writer and the commercial writer well that adds to that whole notion of what we value in literature which is a question that's actually raised in here about what is acceptable what's not uh, is literature more than just the structure and all of these sorts of questions start to emerge then from this and look, there's a few little stabs towards you know, writers of certain kinds and the Australian literary community and the establishment and, and so on there as well. So it was an opportunity to look, it was an opportunity. I, I'm an insider. It was an opportunity to take people inside the world of writing and of publishing and of festivals and, and all of that. Because a, a great story doesn't necessarily get accepted by a publisher. The publishers have their lists and there's a tension between people and the way they uh, appreciate other people's let, writing. Let, let me say, a great story, in my experience, is very, very likely to be accepted by a publisher. Great writing, not so much. <laughs> and that's that, that's that clash. You know, my writing's better than yours, but you got in because you, you've got a better crime or whatever it might be. But here we go. We've got a little writing task that Scott has given Piper, which Emily borrows to write her own story. Now, there's a couple of questions here because it's a story from the perspective of a terrorist. Is that a suitable sort of thing to pursue from a literary point of view? And whose idea is it? Who, who owns the idea. It's very, very hard to copyright an idea. So, and I wanted that sort of ambiguity to be happening there so that none of this really comes down to, to legal issues. It comes down to moral issues. And, you know, there's a point where Scott says, I'll just give it all to Piper and that sort of thing. And Emily, who's created done a lot of creating this idea, feels feels betrayed, even though she doesn't want to follow it forward and, and so on. Because that, that idea of writing from a terrorist's perspective is new it's, it's it's a creative influence for for emily and gives her something that spurs her on to improve or develop her writing yeah um i mean and, and look scott scott's scott's the guy who knows everything about writing but can't actually do it emily emily <laughs> is teaching it but her teaching is very much let's break out the groups let's all write something let's all appreciate each other's work um she doesn't know much theory at all so scott's the the found of all knowledge on theory but just can't do it emily intuitively writes very well but can't explain how she does it yeah and so you there's that tension there as well as the tension in the relationship. And we're not going to actually say what happens in the relationship. We, we need to read or the listener would have to read for themselves. Except, except that, you know, that the, the story about you know, creative differences, um, here's people who are brought together by writing a book together, but then they don't want to do that anymore. At least one of them doesn't want to do it anymore. And the question is, will they now stay together? From both a literary point of view, if you like it, but particularly will the marriage, you know, the relationship hold up? Um, and look, I've got an interest. Um, I've my first book, Rosie Project, was a romantic comedy. And look, romance is a lovely thing, but it tends to be six months, 12 months, whatever. Most of us, the problem that we face is not how to find a partner, but how to keep one. Um, and you know, how, how do you make, you know, how do you sustain a relationship? And that, that interests me far more from a practical point of view. So I'm saying these people are brought together by one thing. Now that thing is gone. 
what will they find to sustain themselves when that scaffolding has, has disappeared? Yeah, but if writing is as good as sex, I can't think of anything more appropriate than uh, writing to keep people together. You do have, in fact, another character here, Gideon. He's the publisher and the way... He, it's a sort of toss-off line. He reminds me of someone in, in a novel I once read. I just can't remember who, but he's got a very pedantic way of making coffee. Yeah, look, he, he's, a, he's a hipster. He's a, he's a skinny, bearded... Um, film buff hipster um, who's fallen into being a, a publisher, um, the luckiest publisher in the world, and there's a little analogy with Ringo Starr there. Um, so so he's our Ringo character, and you know he, he's there to provide a, a bunch of things, a little bit of another romantic interest. And, yeah. and one last question, really. You do take a dig at community radio. I, I don't know whether I should take exception to, to, to this, Graham. There's a little I, reference to... I think, I think if we're to talk about the literary world and the digs I take, I think the one I take at the... Uh, at, at um, community radio <laughs> programs on literature would be one of the gentlest things. <laughs> but something is revealed. In, in terms of the storyline, Piper actually is interviewed on air and uh, reveals more than she should have, perhaps? Indeed. <laughs> so I think the Beatles track was Sexy Sadie. What have you done? You've made a fool of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a role to play, Jan, in, in the lives of authors uh, and and uh, what is released about them um, so basically uh, though all of those challenges come out out in this book it's not just how to write a book it's then the psychological dimension that we get to see the interplay between a couple the psychology of people that want to emulate authors is there as well. So it's a multi-layered story. So if the listener wants to uh, find out what happens to Emily and Scott, first listen to the White Album and then read, <laughs> then read the book and find out what happens to Piper, Gideon, Emily and Scott. The book is called Creative Differences and Other Stories. The author is Graham Simpson, and it's a text publishing release. Sounds fantastic. I think I have to go back and listen to the White Album again. And they're making a movie. And they're making oh, a movie of it as well. Right. Well. Indeed. So, okay. you've got... I've got uh, Paul Delgano. And Often storylines have characters looking back over their lives and the main character in Paul Dalgano's book, A Country of Eternal Light, has Margaret doing just that. But there's a difference. Welcome back to Publish or Not, Paul. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me back. So what's the difference with Margaret? It, the, the difference with Margaret to uh, she's narrating the book after her life. So she's going through a bit of a post-life crisis, you could say. She died uh, about seven years before the events, uh, the, the kind of most up-to-date events in the book, if you like. She is narrating afterlife, but um, we don't really know where she is, what kind of afterlife this is. And rather than reminiscing on the past, um, she's actually re physically or metaphysically revisiting the past. So on some occasions, uh, there are two Margarets in a in a particular moment. That would be living Margaret, as, as she refers to her, and dead Margaret. And as the book goes on, there's a, a growing sense, I think, from Marg that potentially she can interact and 
affect a little bit the the kind of living world world that she's revisiting well we get an earlier life when she's buying a pet mouse and the time that she was the, the featured in the Aberdeen news in Scotland was bride of the week but that was 1970 the story really starts when she's 36 years old her husband has had a workplace accident and is drinking heavily and she's got twins Rachel and Eva they're around 10 years old but how is she reflecting on those girls the uh, key moments in our life include family members and in the case of Margaret she is revisiting her time with her twin daughters as you say from birth really so we we see them kind of a, a few hours after they've been born right up until the last couple of weeks of Margaret's lives uh, life when the the girls return from their lives overseas Eva lives in Spain and Rachel lives in Australia and they spend these kind of last couple of weeks with their mum, who they know is about to die because she's been taken off all, medica- all medication other than pain relief. And really, Margaret's relationship to the girls has been to be an honest broker from about the age of um, 12, 13, because even though they were very close as, as young girls, they kind of uh, there was a kind of rupture around that time which meant they took very different paths from that moment on this is a quote eva the good girl with shelves lined with swimming trophies and rosettes rachel with record sleeves and badly hidden cigarettes so (laughs) they're quite different there's Mm. no continuity to the time no real linking of events we jump back and forward in her life well, did you initially write a timeline for the characters and then jumble it up? Yes, is the short answer. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of characters in the book and the time span of the book is over uh, really about 75 years. So there was absolutely no way to to be able to jump back and forth without quite yeah. a detailed timeline, which became more detailed as I went on. Because, of course, each time Mark goes back, if she goes back to... I don't know, 1980, for example, then uh, her daughters um, are whatever age they are at that point, five or six. I mean, because we've all usually got two birthdays in a given year. And um, her husband, Henry's a certain age, she's a certain age, her mum and dad, her friends, etc. So um, it would have very quickly become nightmarishly um, out of sync had, had I not known, <laughs> not, not only how old somebody was in a year, but when their birthday was for for that reason, because we're all 50 and 51 in a given year. So it just depends when the birthdays fall. Her husband, she either loves him, she gets cross with him. When she comes back and she revisits that time when he finds out she has incurable cancer. Can you read from page 191? She just knows her husband won't cope. Yeah. um, So, yeah, Henry has his own issues going on. He's he's in and out of hospital with uh, quite severe anxiety and psychosis. So he, he's not exactly in a great place. But this is this is Margaret reflecting on Henry and his likely reaction to her news that, that she's, she's come off medication and she's about to die. But there's also a chance and reality I know now he'll see my expedited expiry date as a series of problems for him prompting more questions than he's asked me in years, some of which I'll answer, most of which I'll ignore, and a few of which I'll want to print out and roll into a club with which to smack him around the head. What will it mean for him financially? Will he need to phone the bank? Will he have to arrange a funeral? What do I mean when I say I want to leave my body to science? Does he have to ring a scientist when I die? 
Can I leave the number for the scientist somewhere safe? How is he going to deal with his hospital paperwork? How will it affect his pension? Can I write down his internet password? Can I come over and show him how to use Skype and Facebook? Oh, you can understand why she's a bit cross. And she's also cross that Henry is living, not her. And she watches him receive electrical impulses to help with his depression. This is one of the links to another book, Frankenstein. How else have you run Mary Shelley's story of Frankenstein through the book? Well, it's, it's there all the way through the book. So, um, yeah, from the start and all the way through. And um, Rachel, so one of Margaret's daughters, is currently reading Frankenstein. It's the first time she's ever read it. And Eva, who is, you know, the reader and uh, quotation marks intellectual of the two, is all across it. She's actually a teacher at an international school. She considers herself very erudite and uh, cerebral so they're, they're kind of uh, in a bit of a dialogue all the way through about Frankenstein Margaret herself because I think um, Rachel's talking about it and thinking about it she's reflecting on it too and this idea of um, her own mortality and um, particularly with uh, the, the bit where um, Frankenstein is forced really to create a, a wife for the monster um, the, this idea of, of kind of being sliced and diced. She wants to leave her body to science, doesn't know if it'll be possible, but um, this idea of science and the, the body after the, the kind of soul has left it is very much on her mind. Um, and, and I think just generally as a, as a very broad link, um, Frankenstein is, is the archetypical book looking at what the spark of life is, what, what is life, what does it mean when it's there and what does it mean when it's not there? So um, to me, it was a very resonant uh, book to be kind of in dialogue with this one in a way. There's a time when her daughter, Rachel, and the Rachel's two sons dig a hole and bury a book about Frankenstein for her to read. <laughs> like a memorial, one boy says, well, we'll put a rock on it and if the rock moves, we'll know that grandma's read the book. But this sort of links it into some religious ties too, like Christ and the rock moving from where his body was and this whole thing about this eternal spirit. And you've got a few of those coming through the book too, like Dante and the Divine Wanderer. Is Margaret an unwilling phantom? I think she feels unwilling at some points. She, she, she reflects at one stage that it's great. She, she particularly likes seeing her grandchildren who live in Australia and she, she'll sometimes sit there while they're bathing and uh, slapping water around. And um, she, she kind of enjoys uh, seeing her family, but she's also essentially a bit bored and confused as to why this is happening. And the, the reflections on things like Dante, as you say, and... Uh, various religious doctrines she kind of thinks well how, how can this be the afterlife if i'm in purgatory uh, she's not a catholic but she reflects on dante if i'm in purgatory what's the what's the mission you know shouldn't i shouldn't i have a sense of something i'm meant to be doing um and and she kind of says at one point something like you know you spend your whole life thinking about death and then your whole death thinking about life she says at one point too she's not really a believer in souls um, so she's not a religious woman. She's not spiritual in, in the sense we'd usually understand that. So in a way, she's just a bit kind of perturbed and wondering what's going on. Like, why is she in this? Why is she in this afterlife? What's the thing that she's meant to do 
so that she can actually just go to sleep, so to so to put it, and um, yeah, have a rest. The other thing that's perturbing her is why this is 1920, 1921, why everyone's wearing masks. Yeah, yeah, in, in uh, 2021, that's right, um, because she has no context for COVID or the lockdowns, etc. You've given us a very interesting woman, and I'd like you to read from page four because she's a woman who not only thinks about life and death but also thinks about other more functional things. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say briefly, Chen, that um, one of the kind of inspirations for Margaret is really a couple of women in particular, but not just women in my own family that are staunchly working class, but also were self-taught. And I just always loved the fact that they weren't chasing kind of social approval of any kind, but they were intensely curious smart, intelligent people who um, really inspired me and let, let me see that you can learn things if you want. You don't need uh, you don't need permission or a particular kind of background to, to be able to learn and use language. Okay, so uh, here's the section I think that you're referring to. There's an assumption more prevalent in the past that working class people's brains are inferior, making higher education, the mere thought of it, pointless. The pressure comes from your so-called betters, but also from peers, parents and siblings, as if certain words are too big for our mouths and playing with them is an affront. Where did you get those? Return them to the dictionary at once. Through the book, Paul Delgano, you've given us some beautiful words. A lot of them, I had absolutely no idea what they meant, but they flew into the, the sentence so that you got a feel of them. Some, some of them, indole and putrescine. I don't even know whether I'm saying it correctly. Uh, Lucane. Did you have a favourite one? I quite like that one, uh, Lucane, as uh, you just mentioned. So lacuna is just a Latin word for lake. And the, the context Marg is speaking about it is her grandma, her Nana Jean, who's a bit of a character in the book. And um, this is part of the kind of explanation of what's going on with dementia, which uh, Jean has. And it, it's it's the idea of lakes uh, opening up in your mind. So we're all, I think, familiar with this broad idea of synapses and signals going from place to place in your, your brain. And the idea is that the, these kind of lakes start forming over which those messages can't be sent. Uh, and they're called uh, individually a lacuna, so a lagoon in your mind, or lacunae being once it becomes more like the lake district and your, your mind is more blanks than information. And there's a water theme through the book that we don't really understand until the end. There's some beautiful alliteration, and I, can I quote one here? Being Scotland, Maggie Thatcher's malevolent masterstroke masquerading as opportunity. Oh, wonderful. Thank Look, you. It, it's not just Frankenstein's story, but there's other storytelling going through the book. There's Rachel's story told to her sons. They're rather scary, those stories. They don't have happy endings. Yeah, no, and um, I mean, that that's... Um... You know, if you go back and read it, the, the Grimm brothers and their kind of uncut versions, they're terrifying. You know, all these stories of, you know, what it ends with them having their head chopped off or it, they, they burst into flames. So I, I think the actual tradition of fairy tales for kids, they are quite dark. It's, it's, it's a kind of Disneyfication uh, of, of kind of modern times that we want to tell kids there's a happy ending. Whereas 
I think to take a story like Hansel and Gretel, for example, it's, it's lovely. You know, um, the kids see a house that's made of gingerbread. So that's a nice bit of fantasy. And apparently food in children's stories triggers the same things in your brain as pornography does for adults. So very exciting. You know, wow, there's like uh, sweeties or, or the door handles and stuff. But the message ultimately is in a time of great famine, might adults kind of betray and abandon their children? Well, yes, they could. And should children by, you know, dropping breadcrumbs or other means start really honing their sense of self-preservation? Uh, and yes, they should. And, you know, um, the, those darker truths that are there in uh, stories for young tr children, I think are the reason we still say them to kids hundreds of years later. Grief and love and the wonderful little details that make up a life is at the heart of Paul Delgano's book, A Country of Eternal Life. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Jane. Thanks. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.